UBC's Action on Sepsis podcast series focuses on telling the whole journey of sepsis from the perspective of the patient, with input from healthcare workers, researchers, and other individuals advocating for improved sepsis care nationally and globally. Now, join Christine Russell as she showcases a diverse collection of stories and shares knowledge from research and clinical fields to support learning so that we can help protect yourself and your loved ones. I am your host, Christine Russell, a sepsis survivor and a parent of a sepsis survivor. If you want to know more about my story, please go back and listen to series one. In this series, we will hear from Dr. John Boyd, intensivist, who will talk to us about what it is like to treat a patient in the ICU, and Andy Ann, an MD-PhD student at the renowned Hancock Lab in Vancouver, BC, will talk to us about some of his research focused around sepsis. Today, we are kicking off Series 2 and are joined by fellow sepsis survivor, Kristen McDonald, who will tell us about her journey with sepsis. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you, Christine. I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss my sepsis and post-sepsis experience with you today. That's great. Can, why don't we start with you letting us a little, letting us know a little bit about your story? Um, well, it, that really started in 2016. So I've been living with the consequences of sepsis for the past five plus years. Um, I am a wife and mom, uh, also science editor of a chemical physics journal. Um, Actually, more specifically, I am the managing editor of Applied Spectroscopy, an international journal of of, uh, physical chemistry. And I've been doing that for approximately nine and a half years now as well. Um, I am located in North Vancouver, uh, British Columbia. So my story, uh, however, my story is not that dissimilar to a lot of other sepsis survivors. It's a unique story, but it's certainly not all that unusual. Um, But I decided that I needed to become a a patient advocate uh, for those who have uh, have had sepsis and, and live with the consequences of that. Hence why I'm here today. Right. And so how exactly um, did you acquire sepsis? Um, I need to back up a little bit um, in, in earlier 2016 when, when uh, my sepsis story begins. Um, what had been a long-standing kind of nagging right-sided uh, stitch that, that would occur during my daily workouts. And, I, you know, I hiked. I, I um, certainly was an avid walker. I liked working out my elliptical trainer, cross-country skiing, that sort of thing. Um, so I had this st- stitch in my side that was always kind of this nagging thing at me. But I didn't really pay too much attention to it until um, one early, early morning in April 2016, um, in which I was awakened um, by this fiery pain that was radiating out from kind of just below her, just almost like my below my right rib cage, and it kind of fanned out and radiated across my back. And um, just really, really awful pain. And at the time, I thought, okay, well, perhaps it's, you know, maybe it's a kidney stone. Um, one, one or more family members have had kidney stones in the past. And I thought, well, okay, it could be that. Um, however, I did uh, ask my husband to bring me to the emergency department um, in our local hospital. And an ultrasound revealed that I had this very, very large gallstone that was uh, blocking the ducts um, in, in my gallbladder. 
and this uh, meant that the gall the, the gallbladder had to come out, or I needed to have a, what they call a cholecystectomy. Um, as one of the oldest members on both sides of my family to to require having my gallbladder removed. Um, one of the suggestions why it, I was so much older than some of my other family members was the fact that I'd been a vegetarian for a long time. Um, maybe, maybe not. It was only a suggestion in hospital. Um, I, I tried to kind of weasel out of getting the gall, the gallbladder operation, if you will, uh, simply because I just didn't really want to. I didn't want to have surgery for starters, even though I said it was fairly routine. And I just... I was trying to find a way out, but I needed to have the, the gallbladder operation. So I was booked for the surgery on the 27th of May, 2016. Um, and and, and I, like I said, I did have a lot of misgivings about this, um, about the surgery, because my maternal grandmother, for example, nearly died. And I think she was in her late 20s, early 30s from old, from old school open gallbladder surgery, I think in like the late, late 1940s. Um, and f- for what, from what we know, she did wind up septic and wound up in hospital for quite a while. Um, as a result of that, she managed to survive. But um, it, it seemed, or I was talked into the surgery because it, it was, quote unquote, relatively straightforward. So that's interesting you say that. So you had a... So your grandma also was septic. Yes, in fact, she ended up dying of sepsis later on in 2011. But that's something different. I can I can bring up toward the end of the end of my my uh, my story, if you will. And so there's a connection between, and it's interesting because some research is being done uh, around, you know, the connection, the genetic connection around sepsis. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, we there does seem to be a bit of of a history in my family of, of sepsis that in, involves my maternal grandmother, uh, my mom, um, myself. Uh, I'm not sure who else yet, but I, a lot of the a lot of the research that I've been reading about um, with regard to sepsis, it does seem to be almost like almost like a, a, a propensity in families to be more susceptible to sepsis than, than maybe another person would be ordinarily. Uh, although in our, in our case, in our family, it seems to be medical procedures that, that tend to, to, set, to set our sepsis uh, stories off. Right. And that's interesting. And I mean, I, 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 you know, we're talking about, I, I mean, my, our story is and they say the reoccurrence of sepsis once you've had sepsis is is increased there's a 60% chance that you'll become septic again and and that was what happened mm. with me too right. and and you know my daughter was also septic at birth too so mm. that genetic component around around sepsis is quite strong and so that's very very scary and i can see how you would be would have reservations around wanting to have that particular surgery yes <laughs> right right uh, and then and then that happening so you know tell us t- tell us about that psychological piece around um around you know not only not wanting to have that surgery but then <laughs> but then you know that surgery going 
wrong for you. I know I'm I'm trying to driving you around something right. that perhaps was not in the script of the podcast. No, uh, but I think it's really <laughs> it is really important to touch on that part mm. um, because you did have reservations around that particular surgery. It was it was a surgery that was required. This wasn't an elective surgery. This was a surgery that you did need to have. Correct. Yes. Um, and that it did didn't go right. Right. Well, I, I, I really was hesitant to, to get the surgery um, for a variety of reasons, the family component being one of them or the family tendency to, to, uh, to wind up with, with, in, with sepsis um, was, was certainly a, a concern. Um, but I think, to back up a little bit, I, I there is also a, a, a genetic connective tissue disorder in the family, um, which means odd it, odd things such as um, joint dislocations. I've I've dislocated I don't know how many joints over my life just because things are just too loose. It's called, it's a hypermobility syndrome called Ehlers-Danlos. Um, uh, skin doesn't heal quite as readily as it should. Uh, skin can tear um and and is quite fragile at times or mo- all times i should say and i i exercised a lot and well i try to now too but but even before the before the the, the necessary surgery and before i wound up with with septic shock um i exercised mostly to kind of keep myself held together because i was always told you know exercise your muscles because that will keep your joints more stable, less likely to, to, to dislocate them, that sort of thing, less likely to, uh, if your muscles are hold, your muscles will hold your heel faster than like a ligament or tendon. So you should make sure you keep those muscles strong to kind of, like I said, keep everything held together. Um, so that was definitely one component or, or one component of my fear of, of having the surgery. And I remember going back later and asking, um, and asking my mom, you know, should I, perhaps I should have just avoided having surgery at all, just lived with the pain. And she finally said, no, because your grandmother waited too long and it eventually, her gallbladder ruptured. <laughs> I just thought, great, I can't win. <laughs> so, right. it, it's just, it, so it needed, you're right. It, I had to have the surgery. There really was no choice, but regardless, you know, despite my, my fears, it, it, I still had to have it. Um, there was really no way around it. Right. And I mean, it, it, <coughs> I guess we can back up a little bit and, 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 and make the point that, you know, you, 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 even though you have an underlying condition, you did everything possible to be healthy, right? You ate healthy, you exercised and, and to make the point that mm-hmm. sepsis can happen to anyone. Oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Sepsis can happen to anyone. And it, um, you know, sometimes just despite one's best efforts, things happen that are far out of our control, and um, and just just happens to be one of those things. You know, sepsis just happened to be one of those things in my life that I had zero control over. Um, which, as a control freak in real life, that 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 that's a hard one to kind of come to grips with in terms or psychologically. Uh, something that there's so many things in our lives that we can do to. Um, not only feel better, but feel better about ourselves. That's exercising, like you said, eating right, um, 
you know, certainly looking after that that work life balance, uh, making sure that it's it's healthy. Uh, however, when when something like sepsis does happen, it is such a feeling of helplessness uh, that comes with it, and and odd anxieties that kind of remain after the fact. Uh, uh, which we can go into a little bit further here as we as we continue on with, with my story. But I think um, I'm not quite sure if this is how you wanted to go with this. Or <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. But yeah, going back to the going back to the being a bit of a control freak. I mean, I am an editor. You kind of it, it kind of goes with the territory. Um, it it so many things going wrong so quickly, and it's such a short amount of time. Uh, with in terms of the sepsis and then and then the post sepsis um, and then the recovery period, you know, five years later, I still have things that are out of my control that are re- relating to the sepsis that are still very very frustrating and do limit some of the things that I do in life. I'm not I don't have the same kind of energy that I used to have. I um, no matter how much I exercise because I do feel better when I exercise. There's no question about that. But no matter how much I do exercise um i still there's always this underlying exhaustion and joint pain and muscle pain and that sort of thing that that isn't uncommon after sepsis but i i figured five years on now that we're into 2021 that you know they'd be done i'd be done with this it would be yeah. that you know but it's my new normal yes i agree I, I just refer to it as my new normal yes i can empathize with that tell tell us a little bit about you know those those post-sepsis uh, symptoms. I think, you know, there's a lot of, when we talk about long COVID, I think that's a, a really, really big topic of discussion right now in the world we're living in. And and there's so many parallels between post-sepsis syndrome, which is has not been given enough recognition and long COVID and... and mm. And there's like there are so many similarities between the two. So tell us a little bit about those symptoms that you you still have five years later. Um, uh, First of all, I I did want to say that when COVID first started off and I remember reading about some of the first cases of of COVID and and the the side or I should say the after effects that people were left with if if they were lucky enough to have survived COVID. that I remember thinking to myself, wow, this sounds an awful lot like post-sepsis syndrome. And just there are so many. And then the more I would read about COVID, the more it sounded like, wow, this really does sound like a, you know, a, a sepsis situation. Um, and that being said, I, I could relate to that on a personal level in terms of, of um, extraordinarily long recovery times, for example, Uh, emotional hardships on family and friends and work situations, depending on where one finds oneself, Um, because of exhaustion, uh, just trying to bounce back and and, um, uh, I think, I think some of the big long term issues that that remain with me to this day was um, I lost my senses of taste and smell, for example, for several months after coming out of hospital. So I was in hospital for uh, for 21 days, and then I had to return to hospital about a week later, just uh, for the day, because I, I had um, 
a form of cellulitis that that um, formed just underneath my my diaphragm, um, and that was the part of the incision that took another six months to heal as well. Um, but going back to the, my sense of taste and smell, um, my sense of smell came back with a vengeance. In fact, I'd say it's even better than it used to be. However, my sense of taste is something completely different. Um, things now taste metallic, bitter, toothachingly sweet, whether or not they are, um, or just plain terrible. Uh, and this is a, a bit of a drawback because not only am I a science editor by day, but the, my spare time, I'm a food historian and food writer. So having a good sense of taste and smell are kind of, they kind of go hand in hand. Right. It's a, it's a bit of a drawback not having that, you know, if everything tastes terrible, how can I write about it objectively, you know, or right. subjectively, I guess I should say. Yeah. Um, and... Um, for example, I used to really enjoy good wines, and most wine tastes terrible now to me. I, they're very, <sighs> you know, some of my favorite favorite varietals, Burgundy, Tempranillo wines, just taste terrible to me now. <laughs> which I guess my, it's probably better for my liver in the long run, but, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, I also have ongoing exhaustion, uh, tasks, errands, my sense of what's the word I'm looking for? The, my sense of just get up and go has has gone um which it does affect my work and try you know travel for work travel for pleasure not that we've been able to do that for the past 18 months or so but you know the bone and joint pain um digestive problems like chronic diarrhea that might be a little too much information but um and i'll get back to that in a while because there that's actually a very crucial part of the puzzle that i've been suffering with for five years that i finally got an answer for recently but unexplained fevers. Um, I get really weird fevers that I can't tie to anything these days. I wind up, if I'm really, really tired, I wind up with uh, huge lymph nodes in my throat and a sore throat. It almost feels like I've, I'm coming down with something. And then I take a nap or I have a good night's sleep and then I feel better the next day, no problem. Um, insomnia. Insomnia is a very big problem with anybody, I think, who's, who's had sepsis, um, whatever the cause. Insomnia seems to go hand in hand with that. Um, uh, anemia, neuropathy, muscle weakness, no matter how much I work out, they're just some things that um, I, my muscles just aren't that strong any longer, um, which then affects, I've also got balance problems. Um, and I definitely have anxiety about any further testing or medical procedures, invasive or otherwise these days. Anytime someone says, oh, you need to go do you know, dot, 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 and I'll say, ah, no, 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 thanks. I don't really need to right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> an x-ray, fine, maybe. But uh, yeah, yeah, it just, um, but I think one of the weirdest ongoing problems I have, and no one seems to have an answer for this, is um, my, the vision in my right eye was affected. Uh, from the sepsis to the point where my first six months out of hospital, I, let's see, I think my optometrist and I had changed my prescription for my right eye uh, four times in that amount of time. Because it's it's really an unstable pres- an unstable prescription now. Um, I end up with really strange uh, visual disturbances, and a recent MRI said there's no reason for it. There's they can't find any particular problem that would be causing that. Um, so there are just days I know I don't see very well in my right eye, and that's just the way it goes. And and um, you know, or I'll, I'll wear a different set of glasses. Sometimes that helps, but but it's definitely an odd an odd mystery. Mm-hmm. And not something I've read a lot about in in uh, 
and, and various papers about sepsis or in my sepsis groups that I belong to online, that sort of thing. Um, one of the other things, though, is uh, this was definitely not mentioned anywhere to me. No one mentioned it to me. And I only read about it later as it was happening, which was I have a lot of hair as a general rule. I lost about two thirds of my hair approximately a month after I got out of hospital. Um, you know, to the point where I'm brushing my hair, brushing my hair, brushing my hair, and it's just, it's coming out in clumps. And we, um, we had a house cleaner that would come every couple of weeks and she would, she, I remember she would be in the washroom and, you know, cleaning, tidying up and stuff. And she'd empty the, the waste baskets and say, what is going on? Are you okay? And I just finally said, I think it's part of the sepsis, which was later confirmed. But, um, but that was pretty alarming. Although, I, I have to laugh at myself because I, it, it, what I finally discovered later about myself was really a, a form of ultimate optimism and, and wondering where I was going to be and in, in, in time, which was I, here I am losing all this hair and I went ahead and splurged on a really, really expensive, very nice Mason Pearson hairbrush because I just knew my hair would grow back eventually. <laughs> 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 and to this day, I'm still glad. I, my hair never really did come fully back, but it's mostly back. And and, and now I have this really amazing hairbrush that, that <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's the little things that kind of, I, I, have, I tend to have a gallows sense of humor anyway, but it's those little things that kind of make me laugh about myself and kind of get myself out of these funks that because depression is a really big part of, of, of bouncing back as well. Yeah. Um, and you're going to have good days and bad days. But being able to laugh is is very important, right? Which is which we're finding with a lot of with a lot of post sepsis patients, mm. post ICU patients, regardless right. if it's sepsis or not, post COVID patients. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, yeah. Any critical illness, really? No, absolutely. And um, you know, another another number of weird things that I mean, it's not. They're more souvenirs, I guess, of my of my. Because I did wind up with ICU psychosis. It's not uncommon, um, but it's it's. Uh, I guess it's probably more disturbing to any family and friends that visited me at the time. Which was, um, I wound up because I was thrashing about a lot. I had to be restrained, so I have a scar on my right arm from where they put the restraints on me. Um, I have a bald spot on the back of my head from rubbing my head back and forth on on my my bed. Uh, or my, I guess it would have been my mattress. Um, and um, a number of other things too, like difficulty swallowing. Um, that's if you've been intubated, and then I got reintubated when I was in hospital, which I remember a little too clearly. Um, yeah. Uh, because I was I was brought I was taken off the ventilator too soon, and they decided, oh, nope, she can't. And I remember struggling for air and not being able to breathe. And they said, oh, oh, nope, nope, we need to re reintubate her. So I don't recommend that. It's not fun. If you need to have it done, it's it's a good thing, but it's not pleasant at all. Um, in fact, it's quite terrifying. It's yeah. like, you know, what is normally a, an automatic process is now taken over by a machine, and it's yes. and it's scary, you know, because you uh, that's something that kind of overrides that that lizard part of the brain and puts you in panic mode if you can't breathe, of course. Yeah, yeah, I re um, yes, I I clearly remember my baby being intubated, which is uh, not a pleasant thing to to no. experience, um, and. Again, with this pandemic, that's something that unfortunately is becoming all too common in our world right now. And it's it's mm. a very, very serious thing. Very serious yeah. thing. Absolutely. And it's and it's scary. I mean, if it's um, 
whether or not you're the one being intubated and having to be in a ventilator, it's still, it's also scary for any family members that come and see you because, you know, they talk about a feeling of helplessness. Your, your, your loved one is, is at the mercy of the caregivers there that know their job, but it's still terrifying when you don't know half of what the bells and whistles are doing. And yeah. you've got wires and tubes and hoses and catheters yeah. and everything. And it's just, it's overwhelming. And, and again, that feeling of helplessness when it's your loved one. Yeah. That's, um, yeah, it's scary. Yeah. I remember the beeping being something that was, I remember the, the beeping Mm. Uh, stayed with me for years years it still wakes me up in the middle of the night i'll wake up and think oh i need something i'm supposed to be doing something and it's like oh no 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 no. you were asleep it's okay yeah it's okay yeah yeah (laughs) it's just it's just mm. it's something else that that Mm. uh, medical ptsd is is very very real very real yeah right and i i wasn't willing to admit it except for the past six months or so I I thought, oh, I'm strong enough. I can do this. It's fine. It's fine. But it's been interesting talking more and more about my, my sepsis experience and, and how it is bringing up some of these memories that I thought I'd long buried. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost actually, yeah. to me, I felt like, uh, and, we, and, and I think this maybe touches part on the advocacy piece of what you're doing now. Uh, when, I, when I started to become involved in advocacy, I found that to be quite therapeutic. And I think mm. for for me, when this when I started to do this, it was because I was searching for answers, because there was no answers. I right. uh, when it came to what was happening, more so for Ellie, my daughter, who who had neonatal sepsis, uh, and there was nothing out there. We weren't given anything at discharge. We weren't giving any any information. Mm for therapy or anything like that what to expect what could become down the road for her and and once I was past that and realizing that there was a world of advocacy the advocacy piece became more of a therapy but it also like you said it took me close to four years to realize after she was born that I had severe PTSD and then this was almost a the advocacy piece almost became a, a form of therapy mm-hmm. um and and i'm thankful for that community i don't know if that's something how you're feeling now that you've started to get into that oh absolutely i think you're you are absolutely correct that it's very therapeutic it's very cathartic to to be analyzing my experience and 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 uh, as i as i uh, embrace this advocacy role um, because it it's it's been I, I will say that in the past five plus years since my sepsis experience things have improved greatly in terms of of access to information more and more people are coming forward which I never expected to see and I'm finding it very very um, helpful and I and I like to think that that what I'm doing and what you're doing and, and the, the advocacy community is doing is, is helping others to navigate um, a, a very frightening and, uh, like, like we said earlier, life-altering experience. And having that information and having someone who could speak to your experience or tell you that you might lose your hair, for example. Um, you might have this problem. Um, and uh, I, I do like the fact, too, that we're also talking about um, developing 
more rehabilitative uh, approaches as well, post-sepsis, to support post-sepsis and post-COVID uh, because it's important to have that. You need to have that 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 stabilizing factor of of feeling healthier and feeling better about oneself, and as part of that that entire that whole healing process, that holistic healing process. Right, like post discharge materials, support for families, exactly. just even mm-hmm. a place for those, like a community for those those survivors or those fam- those family members of survivors to to go. And, and learn more because the, the worst feeling is ever is to be discharged after being so critically ill and then not know where to turn after that. Oh, absolutely. And I think, um, I think I'm very fortunate in that I have an amazing life partner who's been so supportive from, from the start. And, um, the number of times, though, that he again going back to that feeling of helplessness on the part of a family member, um, it, he he just felt so helpless. It's like, what can I do to help? It's like you can't. If you could just listen, it's fine. Let let me whinge for a few minutes, and then I'll be done for the day. You know, <laughs> it's like, how are you feeling today? Oh, I'm tired. And my stomach's not cooperating and stuff. And then I just try to let it go. <laughs> yeah. But it's but it's lovely that he's been so patient and so willing to 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 support support me in all this. Um, which I, I think I wrote in my uh, in my initial sepsis experience uh, forum for the advocacy group, um, talking about my my husband was so was so supportive that here I am in a coma in the hospital, bells and whistles again going off and everything, and he read to me daily. I don't rem- I don't have any recollection of this whatsoever, but he read to me daily from my favorite Jane Austen book, Mansfield Park. <laughs> That's I'm like wow. <laughs> so I'm 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 absolutely so so thankful for having that support because again I've heard from a lot of people and 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 online sepsis communities on social media for example where they don't have that kind of support. So not only are they released from hospital without any kind of expectations or no no documentation or suggestions about how to approach life now, but there's this. There's little to no support. I mean, COVID, um, it seems like with, with COVID, things are turning around. Uh, there, there are rehabilita- rehabilitative programs for those with, with uh, sepsis and long sepsis, or long COVID, pardon me. But that's, I mean, that's in development. It's going to still, it's a kind of trial and error from, from what I gather. But what is being tried is, is seems to be working, or I should say what is being tried and sticking around is, is helping mm-hmm. patients in their recovery process. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that can can roll into post sepsis patients. And if anything, mm-hmm. I think we can we can take from that and learn or model around what those post COVID clinics are doing, and take them into practice for mm-hmm. post sepsis patients. And I do know that there are some po- there is a post sepsis clinic that is trying to get off the ground in Vancouver. Yes. Um, yes. And I think, if anything, what COVID has been able to do is open the doors to to realizing that critical illness comes with long-term effects mm, for many, yes. many patients. And it's unfortunate that COVID, because it affected so many people at one time, is the reason why they've been able to implement some of these mm. practices, right? Whereas Correct, sepsis, yes. 
yes, it happens so, so frequently, but it happens so frequently in so many different pockets, right? And at so many mm. different times, it's not in this one big mass lump sum of people, right? Yeah. So, exactly. well, I think, I mean, I, I, what little rehabilitative care I received when I was in hospital was still getting me up and out of bed and walking, you know, kind of stumbling down the hallway using a walker. Um, uh, that that was kind of it for my rehabilitative care. Um, so once I did get permission to do so, um, I ended up uh, taking my rehabilitative care kind of undertook it on my own um so i did clinical uh, pilates and physiotherapy just to kind of rebuild my stomach my core muscles for example i mean they've been cut into uh three times um by the end of 2016 actually i was reading back through my medical records recently i think it was more like four times <laughs> i had four surgeries all told in the end um so trying to rebuild all that because i it was definitely i could barely stand up straight uh because i had nothing to hold me up for example so i so when the money ran out from the secondary insurance through through my um our respective employers for my husband and i um, we started just covering it out of our pockets and um, it was expensive. <laughs> it's expensive to 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 strengthen yourself and, and get back get back in in better condition, kind of thing. Um, I it's I think the importance of that the those or of some sort of rehabilitative services um, is is necessary, and I think I I really am definitely heartened by by the fact that we have these programs now like the the post-covid um uh center here in vancouver which i'm sorry the official name escapes me right at the moment i apologize uh it's it's very promising um i feel i feel like our voices about sepsis um are are being heard finally Mm -hmm. i agree and i think it's happening all across canada and and actually globally as well, where they are they are recognizing that there is a need, not only just for that support of patients, but it, it's going to alleviate pressure on reoccurrence into the hospital for or reoccurrence into the healthcare system for mm-hmm. more acute care needs down the line, and so for taking care of those patients for a longer period of time once discharged is going to is just going to support them longer and give them the tools they need in order to become healthier faster absolutely um and i think it's also important it's it's i also find it very important and this is this is more anecdotal um but the number of medical personnel I've spoken to over the past five years, whether we were at a party or, you know, friends of friends kind of thing. And they, the lack of understanding about what sepsis really is, even on the part of medical personnel, was was pretty, that was disheartening um, at the time, because I just thought, how, how am I going to get anybody to take me seriously if I've got medical personnel who are discounting my experience? Yeah, I agree. And I think uh, uh, at all levels, right? Pediatric, mm-hmm. neonatal, adult, there needs to be more education in a in a healthcare setting, in the in a public awareness setting. Absolutely. 
and yes. a, and in a post sepsis setting to realize that once even though you're ju- you're tr- just treated for sepsis it doesn't mean that you're done with sepsis right it's not just a switch i mean there are a lucky few that that have had sepsis and they have few to few to know side effects or long-term long-term effects um and wow good on them but i i think those that that those of us who haven't had that experience it's important to have um somebody to listen mm-hmm. i agree because i that's uh you know if you if you've been struggling with certain certain health issues and um and no one's listening then that's just as depressing as having survive you know having all the 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 PTSD and the the, the the issues are still hanging over one after 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 su- having had sepsis. Um, you know, if no one's taking you seriously, how are you supposed to get better? <laughs> yeah, and I always yeah. say it's funny because I always say, uh, from the amount of testing that my that Ellie's been through, because there's been no recognition that there's a possibility that what she's experiencing is from her sepsis at birth. Mm. She's like the hundred million dollar child at this point from the amount of tests that she's been through, the amount of specialists she's been through. And so even if there's just a recognition that, you know, we're not going to take this off the table, that there's a possibility that this is from her sepsis Mm. and just say, no, you know, she was treated, she the infection was resolved she was discharged everything was fine when you got home if if there could just be some discussion around you know what maybe this is a possibility let's look at some literature let's look at some research papers let's let's do more research around this then you know we're opening more doors and helping hundreds of thousands of patients that have been through the most common cause of death in our world. Yeah, every two minutes someone dies of sepsis, or so the statistics say. Right. I mean, this is this isn't this isn't a one in a million disease. This is this is the most common cause of death. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. And and uh, uh, on a personal note, and this is something I think you and I discussed last week in a, in a separate meeting, but. Um, uh, for example, I, I mentioned earlier in this this interview that I've had chronic diarrhea since I was in hospital in 2016. I remember mentioning it to my my surgeon, various other specialists, doctors, nurses, even the the home healthcare nurses. I kept saying, "This isn't going away." You know, what what do we do? Oh, it'll be fine. It'll go away. Well, cut forward five years, it hasn't gone away. Um, but thankfully, and 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 because of of a gastroenterologist I was recently uh, uh, referred to because he was willingness to be open-minded and 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 hear my story I'm actually on medication now to help that and it was very interesting that I told this this physician that I about four years ago I was sent to a liver specialist just to make sure that I didn't have any long-term liver damage from from the sepsis or um, the 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 genetic disorder that's in the family that wanted to make sure everything was fine and healthy and stuff and I remember um, um, 
I can't remember if it was a friend or family member who's in medicine said, well, could it be bile acid malabsorption that's causing all of these stomach problems? And I thought, oh, I don't know. And I did a little bit of reading up on it. I mentioned it to this liver specialist and I got completely blown off. Oh, no, it couldn't possibly be that. (laughs) So then in the course of conversation a couple of weeks ago with this gastroenterologist, and he finally said, you mean no one suggested to you that you might have bile acid malabsorption? It is common in those who no longer have a gallbladder or have had a bowel resection, both of which you have had. (laughs) And I was like, oh, and within the first dose of this medication, once I finally picked it up from the pharmacy, relief (laughs) for the first time in five plus years. (laughs) So all I could do was laugh. I just thought, really? Well, at least I was persistent and I kept badgering people about it. But, but, and it's one of those things you don't exactly bring up cocktail parties either though, that, oh, by the way, I have chronic diarrhea. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's one thing I'll mention to my friends who are medical people, but, you know, it's like, what do you think? And they're like, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you, but, um, Yeah, it's it's just it's just one of those insult to injury portions of this whole experience of, of four years of it. So yeah, it was exactly. just five, a, a few days or a few weeks. Yeah, oh. it's not like, and nothing worked up until a couple of weeks ago. Nothing worked. So yeah. Yeah, well, so. on that note, <laughs> if there's anything, any advice or anything you could tell sepsis survivors, what would it be? Um, I feel like if, if nothing else, I hope that my, my experience and my talking about it will help fellow survivors, um, to, to ask questions, to keep, to keep badgering their, their GPs and ask for, um, for referrals to specialists and not everyone's going to listen but occasionally you'll find that one medical person that will be sympathetic will um will listen um i'm very fortunate that i have a lovely lovely gp she's amazing and has long been very supportive and said i really don't know what how we should approach this so i'm going to send you to x y or z specialist um but i think if nothing else it's, it has illustrated the importance of being um, an advocate, whether it's for yourself or a loved one, but or even, again, self-advocacy or just being an advocate um, to feel better, to try to find ways to cope, to... Um, and and I, what I mean cope in terms of just all of the side effects that can happen to a person um, resulting from sepsis just that that sense of of that that urgency that need to 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 ask for help and to help others i think is so important in the in the journey post-sepsis well thanks Kristen, and thanks for joining us excellent well thanks again on the next episode of the action on sepsis podcast i am joined by dr john boyd associate professor faculty of medicine at the university of british columbia as well as an intensivist at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver. Dr. Boyd and I will discuss the effects sepsis has on patients and what it is like to treat patients in the ICU. 
That's this week's episode of UBC's Action on Sepsis podcast. We thank the brave sepsis survivors that have come forward to share their stories, our review panel that includes physicians, clinicians, researchers, and our patient advisors. If you like this podcast, make sure to hit subscribe to keep up with the latest episodes and give us a rating on your podcast platform of choice. Join the conversation by connecting on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and let us know what you think about this week's topic. You can also check out our blog for resources and links to topics on this episode at sepsis.ubc.ca slash podcast.